This is episode nine. They say all is fair in love and war, and that's true whether you're a mortal or a god. And especially if you're the goddess of love, beauty, and desire. Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and author of three best-selling novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. Today we walk with this goddess who can create ecstasy or more pain than the darkest realms of the underworld itself. I speak of Aphrodite. It's happened to us all. You're out on some boring task, maybe at the store or at a party. You look up and you see someone and feel absolutely smitten. This may have happened to the ancient Greek poetess Sappho from the island of Lesbos, whom history suggests may have been attracted to women. She wrote, Iridescent throned Aphrodite, deathless child of Zeus, weaver of wiles, I implore you, don't, lady, torment my spirit any longer with the pains of love. Well, you know the phrase, love is a battlefield. And Aphrodite sets the landmines so many of us step on repeatedly. Our earlier episodes are filled with stories of creation, seduction, constant deception, and divine power plays. Today is no different. While you may have heard of Aphrodite, perhaps Venus is more familiar... That's because Aphrodite was renamed Venus by the Romans, and her name, Venus, is commonly used today. And as this podcast explores ancient Greece, we will call her Aphrodite. She broke hearts and sparked infatuation, inflamed the shy with courage, and created constant affairs between gods and mortals. And Aphrodite worked hand-in-hand with her son, Eros. They were like the Bonnie and Clyde of love, partners in crime. The Romans called Eros Cupid. Of course, the term erotic derives from Eros. But here's how it worked. Aphrodite would choose the target, and Eros would shoot his arrow, and it was done. The ancient lyric poets best describe the effects that these two created. Ibicus, a 6th century writer, said, Eros looks at me meltingly and flings me into the inescapable nets of Aphrodite. Sappho, who I quoted earlier, also wrote, Eros shook my heart like a wind falling on mountain oaks. And Euripides, one of the greatest of ancient Greek playwrights, wrote, Aphrodite, thy eternal sway, all the race of men obey. Alone they were a force together, that is Aphrodite and Eros. They were unstoppable, even by other gods, and that hasn't slowed down, not even today. And so when I speak of Aphrodite, I include her constant wingman, Eros.
Of the 12 Olympic gods, only three could withstand Aphrodite's charms. One was Athena, another Hestia, and the third was Artemis. All were her sisters and the daughters of Zeus. They were proud of their virginity, and unlike their father, they were totally unmoved by Aphrodite's schemes. But Zeus and the rest of the gods could not resist. Eros shadowed Aphrodite, more an assistant than a flunky. The writer Hesiod, one of Homer's contemporaries, wrote, He loosens the limbs and weakens the mind, overpowering reason and the plans of man and gods. You see, Eros was the infamous divinity who shot love arrows into the innocent. Anyone hit by his arrows became besotted, head over heels in love with, well, someone, anyone, but usually someone they'd never been attracted to before. Imagine, the goddess would point to a new victim, Eros would act, and within a short time, a new affair or a mad infatuation would begin. Eros's origin was uncertain, but regardless of his ancestry, he became her constant companion, often inflicting love on others at her direction or even at his whim. Sometimes his love arrows were shot from pure spite, and at other times they were loosed with a maddening sense of humor. Shakespeare himself wrote a play called A Midsummer Night's Dream, where one of the characters falls in love with a donkey. It was all the doing of the mischievous Eros. In any event, he couldn't be stopped. If you became his victim, you fell madly in love. And this is exactly what happens to two of the characters in The Winnowing, my first book about Greek gods. Jack and Chloe are manipulated by Aphrodite and Eros and begin a torrid affair in order to pave the way for the Olympic gods' re-entry into our world. In the early Greek stories about Eros, he appeared as a beautiful young man, but his aging mysteriously reversed. As time went by, he got younger. Eros was eventually imagined as what scholar Jenny March calls an infant with a bow and a quiver full of inescapable arrows. And don't forget, he had wings and flew. He hid behind curtains and inside closets or above unsuspecting innocence. Sounds like Cupid, right? We've kept the Roman name for him and still imagine him with his baby-like features, wings and all. But with arrows around, nobody was safe. Even those with the highest morals, even those with a constant scowl, all would fall deliriously in love. In the same way that the ancients argued over Eros's beginnings, they disagreed about Aphrodite's origin. And as usual, it was all a bit slippery. The ancient Greek poet Hesiod claimed she arose from sea foam. After all, the Greek word for foam is aphros, as in Aphrodite, or she of the foam. 
But saying she arose from seafoam masks the grisly details of Hesiod's poetic tale. You'll remember from previous episodes that there's a dark stain that runs through much of old Greek history. Kings were frequently overthrown by a son, and this started with Gaia's mate, Uranus. From their union came a child called Kronos, who killed Uranus, and it was the first instance of a son killing his father. It was gruesome. Kronos actually dismembered Uranus and threw his parts into the sea. Hesiod said that from the sea foam that resulted, the most beautiful of goddesses emerged. Of course, I speak of Aphrodite. And as an aside, in episode seven, we learn of Kronos being killed by his sons. While no one really knows exactly how Aphrodite came to be, perhaps all the ambiguity made sense. You see, Uranus, Gaia's husband, was synonymous with heaven. So it's fitting that this most heavenly of goddesses, Aphrodite, arose as a result of the sky god Uranus's death, and that the most heavenly of pleasures most mortals know comes from love. In addition, the poet Hesiod's tale is so typically Greek. The Greeks reveled in violence and deceit. The idea that immense beauty would arise from the gruesome death of an ancient deity surprises us, but it's hardly surprising. So that's Aphrodite's origin story, and we can take away from her beginnings why she's the way she is. Birthed from violence, it's no wonder love remains a battlefield. So while Hesiod offered one version of her birth, Homer wrote as if he'd never heard the horrendous tale of Kronos and Uranus. He stated that Aphrodite was the daughter of Zeus and a titan named Dione. But really, does either story matter more than the other? Whether Aphrodite arose as a young woman from the sea foam of her dismembered grandfather, or simply grew up in the dark shadows of his murder, her pursuit of love may have been how she escaped the family atrocities. There's a glorious 15th century painting by Botticelli showing her born as a young woman and standing in a scallop shell. She modestly covers herself with a hand, her long hair falling over one of her breasts. Several divinities nearby celebrate her birth. You've probably seen this work. It's so famous. This Italian painting was created several thousand years after the Greek civilization peaked. By then, she was Venus. Yet, whatever her name and however much time has passed, all still celebrate her and her influence is clearly as strong as ever. Love is one of the greatest of human emotions. Aphrodite embodies all that love represents, its glory, its agony, and its eternal allure.
Aphrodite could manipulate even the most powerful gods. Even the mighty Zeus was no match. While he was virtually invincible, he was also more prone to sudden bouts of infatuation than any other god. His exploits were infamous. Goddess, nymph, sister, mortal woman, all were pursued by Zeus. Yet there were times when Zeus resented Aphrodite's spells. After all, his last wife Hera was constantly jealous as he constantly fell in love. Fed up with Aphrodite's trickery, Zeus decided to punish her by giving her a dose of her own medicine. She should learn, he thought, what it was like to be struck by desire for a mortal. And if she were humiliated as well, all the better. So to set his trap, he picked a shepherd whom he found tending flocks. Zeus muttered a divine spell, smiled as he saw Aphrodite's eyes fill with confusion. She wondered what had struck her. She knew something had happened. Then she knew. When Aphrodite saw the shepherd tending his flock, she was seized with desire. She had to have him, so she went to him dressed as a princess. At first, the shepherd thought she must be a goddess. She was just too perfect, and he was too lucky. But she assured him she was not. And then she pleaded, let us consummate our union here and now. He agreed and led her into his simple hut. Homer wrote of this night, then by the will of the gods and destiny, he lay with her, a mortal man lying within mortal goddess without knowing clearly what he did. When she did reveal her true identity, he pleaded for mercy, knowing no good ever came to a mortal man who slept with goddesses. She told him he was safe as long as he kept their secret. Later, she had his son, Aeneas, a hero during the Trojan War, and whom many say was the founder of Rome. But it wouldn't be a Greek tale without some fireworks. One night, when the shepherd was drinking with friends, he bragged about Aphrodite. So much for secrets. When Zeus caught wind of this mortal's disrespect, after all, the scorn shooting from Aphrodite's eyes was like lightning. He in turn struck the shepherd with a thunderbolt, blinding him forever. The fascination we have with these gods is that they're just like us. Their stories are like ours. Their love affairs mirror ours. Their tragedies and their triumphs are familiar. They're a reflection of us or we of them. Homer describes Aphrodite as glad in her heart despite her birth from violence. But she did have issues, particularly issues with infidelity as she wasn't faithful to her husband. She married the god Hephaestus, a, a real genius, but not one in the ways of love. Aphrodite's eye wandered and her heart became unfaithful. She chose brawn over brains and began a long affair with Ares, the god of war. Perhaps they were the perfect example of the saying, opposites attract. 
Helios, the sun god, caught them while they lay together, whispering endearments. They were in an open meadow as he arced overhead. A gossip, Helios quickly told Hephaestus everything. And Hephaestus needed to find out for himself, so he set a trap. He told Aphrodite that he was taking a trip to a distant city and wouldn't be back for a while. But instead of leaving, Hephaestus fashioned a magical, invisible net over the bed, and as they lay there, he released it, trapping the now helpless lovers in their embrace. Cruelly, he called the other gods as witness to the naked pair, and predictably, the Olympians laughed and mocked the philanderer and the poor Aphrodite. Disgraced, Ares paid a fine imposed on adulterers, and Aphrodite banished herself to Cyprus to escape the shame. Now a final story, a tragedy that played on the Greek consciousness for a thousand years. This one is a tale of three goddesses competing for a golden apple. Aphrodite won, but her victory led to the 10-year Trojan War and countless deaths. Zeus's wife Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite went to a wedding. A guest brought an apple made of gold that was engraved to the fairest one. All three goddesses immediately laid claim to it, squabbling among themselves. Zeus intervened, commanding Hermes to take the three to a man nearby who would render judgment as to who was the fairest. The man turned out to be Paris, who was the son of the king of Troy. And you've heard the expression, all's fair in love and war. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Each of the goddesses tried to bribe him. Athena promised victories in battle. Hera promised him imperial power that would far exceed his father's. Well, that was all well and good, but Aphrodite offered him the love of the most beautiful woman in the world. Paris knew by reputation that that could only be Helen of Sparta, who would be known shortly and forevermore as Helen of Troy. And hers was the face that launched a thousand ships. But Paris could not have anticipated his fate or known that Zeus was playing a long game and that he, Paris, was a mere pawn in a game of gods. Racked with lust for the Spartan beauty, Paris chose Aphrodite as the fairest of the three. And this incident became known as the Judgment of Paris. And yes, Aphrodite won, but the Trojans were to lose. Their fate came a decade later and after a standoff that cost thousands of lives. During that war, when Paris is admonished for stealing Helen from her husband, Paris says, Do not fault me for accepting the lovely gifts of the golden Aphrodite, for glorious gifts given by the gods must never be declined. But things did not turn out well for Paris. Just before Troy was sacked by the Greeks, he was killed by an arrow. And Aphrodite, she kept her golden apple. So how do we end this goddess's story? But wait, there is no end. While Artemis and Athene, Poseidon and Apollo, Ares and Hecate all slipped away, Aphrodite in her new guise as Venus 
went on as before. The Romans revered her. Eros continued at her side, and even when the Roman Empire began its slow disintegration, she continued on. She was, after all, love. It flowed from her as if from a perpetual spring. Passion, infatuation, deception, seduction, all of these were her attributes, and they powered the world. They were timeless, and if she had vanished like the other gods, life might have ended there. In my novel Homo Divinitus, Aphrodite appears in today's world to meddle and maneuver as she always has. She's quite modern as she celebrates love in all its manifestations. In our next podcast, we leave love and look instead at prophecy. The prophecy we'll unveil is not that of fortune tellers gazing into crystal balls or shuffling tarot cards. No, instead we delve deeply into a world where Apollo spoke through an extraordinary woman called the Pythia. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.